You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored well we have a very special episode of literary treks this week we are finishing out the coda series with the one and only david mack and so before we dive into the interview just wanted to say thank you to everybody who's listening uh, of course you can find us of course wherever you get your podcasts uh and you can find us all over social media under at trek fm or on facebook at facebook.com slash trek fm you can uh, talk to listeners in their uh, discussion group on Facebook called the Babel Conference if you'd like. And of course, you can find us online at Trek FM. But honestly, we have so much to talk about. With no further preamble, I am so excited to welcome back the one and only David Allen Mack. How are you doing, David? I'm okay. Good, good. I'm glad to have you here. And um, I just, you know, first I've been asking uh, Dayton and James and, and now you just, you know, it's been a whirlwind. It's been a huge series um, and, uh, you know, years of work having poured into this, you know, end. And I just wanted to know how you're feeling about everything. Mostly I'm just thinking about my next project. I've been done in my head with COVID mm-hmm. since probably April of this year when I turned in my final edits after that, it was out of my hands. It was going to be what it was going to be. It was into production and there would, there was no more opportunity to change things. So once that was done, I just kind of had to let it go. Yeah. I mean, and, and in many ways, (laughs) as you say that, I'm just thinking like how much of life is like that, you know, we can only do what we can do. uh, And so much is not up to us. And so we just kind of have to roll with it. And so, well, uh, you know, as somebody who's been, you know, reading your books for a long time, specifically here with Star Trek, um, Mm -hmm. I definitely wanted to say congratulations, you know, and I, I know it's been a lot of hard work for you all and um you know you finally made it so that's really cool and um i was wondering you know as as you were coming into the series you know i know um you all had afterwards for the book and kind of talked about some of the behind the scenes just for yourselves for you personally coming into the series what were you hoping to to try to do with the series um beyond just you know the task of of bringing the lit verse to an end. What, what were you hoping uh, to be able to bring to it? Well, I think what makes my book a little different from the other two is that in addition to the narrative purpose that it serves in the Star Trek literary continuity, for me, it's also intended as an homage to the late Neil Peart of Rush, who passed away in January of 2020, uh, which was just the first of sort of three emotional gut punches I took that year because 
Neil was uh, a creative and artistic idol of mine since I was about 12 years old. And his death seemed to just come out of nowhere because he and his family, he was a very private man. They had kept his illness pretty much out of the news. So the news of his death felt very sudden to those outside of his inner circle. And then on top of that, in the end of April 2020, my own mother passed away. And then at the end of 2020, in December, about a year ago, uh, fellow Star Trek author Dave Gaunter uh, also succumbed mm -hmm. to cancer. So 2020, for me, the period of time when I was doing the bulk of my work on story development and then manuscript for Oblivion's Gate, uh, for me, was very much a year marked by loss, by sorrow, uh, by abrupt and seemingly arbitrary endings, mm -hmm. uh, and the obviously the end then of the the shared Treklet continuity, this 20-year literary experiment, which has pretty much marked the entirety of my Star Trek uh, prose writing career uh, with just one more blow, one more feeling of mm -hmm. loss uh, piled on top of everything else. And so on top of the other personal losses that I was grappling with, I was also trying to get my head around uh, being asked, well, actually not even being asked, having asked to willingly uh, pull out the rug from under 20 years of my own work and that of my my friends and colleagues. Hmm. Man, I, I, I mean, I think so many people have such similar stories to that when it comes to the year uh, 2020. Um, it was a hellish year. Yeah, it, it was it absolutely was. You know, there's there's no two ways about it. And um, I, I I'm really interested on in that for you. You know, I, like you said, you you asked to be able to be a you, allowed to do this to to mm -hmm. end the series. And and so for you, what was the rationale of of desiring to bring this to an actual conclusion? Well. Once I realized that Picard was going forward um, and that it was going forward in a way that was going to radically depart from what we had established as 24th century or late 24th century continuity, I knew that it was inevitable that the tie-in books were going to be asked to realign themselves uh, in terms of their continuity, their content, their narrative direction to become compatible with the new canon and that anything that was not compatible with new canon was going to suffer one of two fates at the whim of the publisher. One would be that they would simply halt at wherever they were and would simply not be addressed again, most likely because there's, you know, the tie-ins have to be consistent with the canon at the time right. they're written yep. for the most part, or the other opportunity was going to be that the publisher was going to want to tie this off somehow with a ribbon, put some event, either a single book or a trilogy of books or some other type of uh, event to just sort of, you know, say farewell to this. And if it originated on the publisher side with the editors, uh, you know, with the licensor, if it came from inside, well, there's no telling who they're going to assign. There's no telling who they'll choose for a project like that, uh, depending on who's available, who's at the top of the Rolodex, et cetera. And my thinking was, you know, I've, I've got very strong feelings having spent 20 years and having contributed many 
influential works to this shared continuity, uh, including Star Trek Destiny, uh, Star Trek Cold Equations, uh, the work I did on the Mirror Universe saga. Uh, and I just felt like, okay, if anybody is going to be involved in writing a conclusion, writing some sort of swan song to what we've been doing, I feel like I deserve to be in the mix. And then my thought was, well, they're probably not going to let me have a whole trilogy. The schedule has contracted over the years. It used to be 24 books a year back in the mid nineties. Then it was down to about 12 books a year in the early aughts. And then recently it dropped to 10 a year, then 80 a year. Now we're down to six a year and they're not going to let me have three out of six. And right. if they did, the <laughs> remaining authors in, uh, of Star Trek would gather together to have me killed. So I had a man to was found dead I, today in New York. <laughs> yes. Beaten with copies of Star Trek books. <laughs> yes. um, so I had to think if I was going to share this project with anybody, who would I turn to? Who are the creative partners I've turned to again and again and who I've enjoyed working with again and again? And I'm sure to be no surprise, right at the top of my list was my buddy Dayton Ward. And then there was James Swallow. Uh, because for me, working with these guys is like getting the band back together. We've worked together before on Vanguard. We've worked together on The Fall. We worked together on Type Impact. Uh, we worked together on the 24 books at Tor Forge. Uh, we just, we click. We, we have sort of a shorthand at this point, the three of us. And so they were at the top of my list. And then there was also hope that if the publishers were amenable that we would, you know, try to generate some work for our fellow authors by creating what we were going to call breadcrumb books. The idea that there would be titles, uh, maybe in the DS nine line or Voyager or wherever that we're going to, that would give them an opportunity to more organically address and tie off their major running storylines, but at the same time, drop some seeds, drop some breadcrumbs to uh, prepare the readership for Coda. Unfortunately, the schedule having contracted from 10 down to six without our knowledge at that time, the opportunity for the breadcrumb books just did not exist. And so that would have been a brilliant idea had we been able to pull it off. And a lot of the storylines that we were not able to address or that we just did not have time to address or that did not work with our thematic uh, conceit for Coda could have been addressed elsewhere. Uh, but that just didn't turn out to be the case. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's so interesting because, you know, having heard all three of you kind of talk about that idea, I think it's obviously brilliant. And it, I, I'm not surprised at all that that was your first thought uh, as to how to do this, because, you know, I know all of you come into this with uh, just a desire to make this the best possible thing it can be. Um, and you want to pay off as many of those storylines that you've spent so many years investing in. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, it's unfortunate realities of, of creation in this modern age. You know, everything seems to be going so fast and just not enough time uh, for things, which I yeah. guess in some ways, um, I, I think I've, I've seen you mention this, you know, in other places. It's metatextual that the way the Coda trilogy ends up is in many ways the way so much of, of what we see is happening, uh, especially in yeah. this. So, I mean, yeah. yeah, Coda in many respects acts on a metatextual level as a commentary mm -hmm. on what we, the authors, are doing, just as the characters are being asked 
to willingly let go of and sacrifice the last 14 years of their lives that have been off in this splinter uh, timeline, mm-hmm. um, you know, to serve some greater good that they can't see, that they can't verify, but, you know, which they have to just take on faith uh, is going to be worth the sacrifice. Right. It's pretty much the same as what we're being asked to do, which is sacrifice 20 years of our work of 20 years of our lives uh, for something that we have to take on faith right. is going to be, uh, it's going to merit that sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, uh, for me, especially with book three and the year I had and the things that were on my mind, uh, Oblivion's Gate is in many respects, it's about loss. It's about confronting mm-hmm. death essentially. And the fact that certain things are inescapable and what do you do? How does one react when there is no option left for victory, there's no way left to win. Mm. Uh, and I think that, you know, a lot of the folks who I think are sort of recoiling from this particular element of the story direction, uh, I, I can understand why, you know, they say, you know, why wasn't there more of a chance for a happy ending? Why didn't more people band together to find the solution? And I'm like, the solution to what? To death? Right, right. To yeah. entropy? To to <laughs> What are you going to find the solution to here? The whole point of the story is when you are confronted with the inevitability of your death, and we are all going to have to face this moment, and it just happens for them that it happens to them collectively as a group of friends, as crews, as a civilization, what do you do? Do you? I mean, if you've got the option, if you know that there's one last thing you can do, you can go down fighting and spare someone else this arbitrary, premature violent end you have to take the hit but you know that you can spare countless others if you're victorious isn't that worth the fight isn't it worth to fight to to rage against the dying of the light to the last minute to serve a greater good even if you don't get to see that greater good even if no one will know that it was you who served that greater good isn't the good in and of itself worth fighting for and that's what it's about I, and I really I think that is one of the things that I enjoyed about the series. And, and in a lot of ways, I think what it reminded me the most of was um, in The Lord of the Rings and Galadriel calls it the long defeat, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and that, yes, it, it ends in defeat, right? Like you're and, and for the elves, too, you know, it's their time. They're dying. Um, they're le- they're going to be leaving Middle Earth, you know, um, and so it is the long defeat. They diminish and go into the West. Yep, exactly. And and that's exactly, you know, it's the same kind of thing that happens here um, with the, the Litverse. And, and it's it's understandable, like you said, authors are feeling it. The, the readers are feeling it. And, you know, um, we do the best we can with what we mm-hmm. have to work with. And I wanted to ask you because I was I I I got the book um, and I immediately cracked it open and started reading it and I was absolutely shocked that you started the way you did with the prelude and I was wondering what was, your thoughts were behind that because it is such a th- like a it's like you came in with a two by four and just smacked me in the face. That was the idea. The the <laughs> idea there was a bit of misdirection. That's sort of me once more. You know, at the very least, I'm going to try and have fun while I'm uh, doing this incredibly dark, terrible thing. So I open with what is going to at first appear to the reader before they get deep into the book 
it's going to appear to them to be a flash forward. They think I'm flashing forward to the end of the book and showing them the preview of the end. And then the question becomes, well, crap, how do you get out of that? You've taken us all the way through the point of final defeat. How are you going to walk that back? And I keep the conceit going where you, you know, you, you flip the page and you've got, you know, the part one title page, and then it says two days before the end. And the natural leap in your head is, okay, we're going back 48 hours. Well, it's not what I said. I didn't say 48 hours earlier. I said two days before the end. Two days before the end of this timeline. The other timeline's already gone. Second Splinter is gone. But you don't understand what Second Splinter means, because that's the, the title mm-hmm. of the prelude, until you get almost to the end of Part 1, and you discover that they are going to be calling their own timeline, the Treklet timeline, is in fact what's known as the first splinter timeline, the one that was the first in this particular branch to splinter off the prime timeline. Mm. And once you realize that our characters live in something called the first splinter, and that subsequent splinters off of it became more unstable and were the ones that the Davidians have basically been chewing their way back from, like from the tip of a branch toward the trunk of the tree, that's when it clicks and you say, Second splinter, that was the death of the most immediate adjacent timeline, and we're next. But at least until you get to that part of the end of part one, you've had this opening that feels like a flash forward, but is really just a misdirect. But it's supposed to show you this is the this is how badly it can go wrong. This is you know what has happened countless times before. This is what our heroes are up against. So it's basically there to escalate the feeling of impending dread as we move forward. And then when you realize our characters are walking into that station again in part three, that's the moment of, well, here we go. How's it going to play out this time? And I I think that that's one of those things where it gets an immediate reaction from you as a reader, which is always a good thing to be able to do uh, in a book. And then it it has you asking a bunch of questions. Um, And so, as you said, throughout the rest of the book, then you're slowly kind of beginning to answer those questions. And you kind of already went into some of it. But, you know, one of the big things about this book is that the Borg are back in town and Mm -hmm. um which sounds like a catchy name for Star Trek song. Uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, like the boys are back in town. The boys exactly. are back in town. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you need some nice electronica in the background going and everything. Well, it's so, more of a funk track. But yeah, <laughs> okay, you, you I can know. go with that too. There you go. I mean, if you want to honor the original on which oh. you're based. You know, <laughs> oh, groovy, man. baby. Groovy. Oh, I love it. But so with that – and explain a little bit of of the thought process is that you know the davidians are kind of a side product to something that happened all the way back at first contact and and obviously for you it's got to mean a lot too because you know you are the person who basically took care of the borg once and for all so we're going mm-hmm. back to them um now to kind of rewrite history and so talk about how all that came about and and uh you know, why you felt like that was the best way to make this happen. Well, first of all, uh, I blame Dayton. The <laughs> concept of bringing back He's the probably Borg, in the green room here somewhere. We could, we could get probably him out here. Bring him on out. <laughs> no, he and I had, you know, we, we had to talk all this stuff out at the very beginning. Uh, my original concept that I started cooking up back in uh, 2019 and on which I pitched and sold uh, James Swallow to come aboard 
when I brought that to Dayton, uh, he said, well, you know, it's a good idea, but it's flawed because of this. And they're doing some stuff in Picard. that's going to negate that. And I said, well, how about this? And this is a fix. He goes, no. And then he, he just sort of shook his head and said, dude, it's so much worse than you think. And then he began to explain <laughs> to me the level uh, at which discontinuities were occurring and where they were occurring in the, in the timeline. And that was when we realized, you know, even though Picard takes place in 2399 and the, the Treklet continuity was up to late 2386, early 2387, um, they were establishing stuff that happened in 2385. But we can't just roll back two years mm-hmm. to retcon. By that point, even by that point, the discontinuities between what we were doing in the literature and what they were establishing as backstory in Picard was so great that we could not reconcile it. There was no way to make the square peg fit in the round hole anymore. So we realized 2385 is not far enough back to roll. We said, well, what about Nemesis? Could Nemesis be the divergence point? Uh, you know, seeing as that was where we had left off all the stuff and where the post-continuity or post-finale continuity launched from. And Dayton again said, no, it's not far enough back because of this, because of this, because of this. And he says, and also it just, you know, isn't really, uh, it doesn't offer a good opportunity for that. And he was the one who pointed out our best option is to go all the way back to first contact and have it be connected to the trip through the temporal vortex and have, and basically link it in some way to the Borg and that completely Borg-infested alternate Earth we see in alternate 2373. And I realized, okay, I, I see your point, but I looked at him and I said, but for the love of God, why would we bring in the Borg after everything I went through to get the yeah. damn Borg off the board <laughs> in Destiny? Now you want to bring them back? And he goes, do you have a better idea? And I said, mm. well, no. And then we thought it over, and he eventually sold me on the merits of the idea. And I realized, okay. For all that I went through to get the Borg off the board, this at least is not a replay of destiny. It's not the, right. the march of the Borg through the Federation. This is essentially Jean-Luc Picard is taking his trip through hell. He's basically playing the part of mm-hmm. uh, Dante, you know, being walked through, uh, you know, the inferno. He has to face his worst nightmare Mm, one last yeah. time and it's even worse than he remembers he thinks he's facing a borg queen that he's going to recognize uh that he has some sort of uh sneaky you know ace card to play from up his sleeve mm-hmm. only when he tries to play this sneaky card he finds that it has no relevance to this particular mm-hmm. version of the borg queen and that's when he's left thinking damn it time travel it occurs to him this probably the borg have probably <laughs> overwritten their own origins many times mm-hmm. uh, and it was better just not to give them any new information. Uh, but so it was Dayton who found that possibility. And then I did a lot of the timey, wimey, wibbly, wobbly uh, techno babble stuff to, and I drew a really big diagram, which I'm going to have to put on Twitter one of these days, but I, I did this big Photoshop diagram with, you know, colored lines and squiggly lines and oscillating lines and a circle and an arrow and a paragraph and it kind of just shows, you know, where all these timelines were, where they interconnected, who went back from where, what splintered, what fractured at what point to create what. And it's 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 a real work of art. And it, it took some time to put it together and then to make the editor. I basically, we did it because we needed a visual to show the editors and the licensor 
because trying to explain it in mere words left them going, what? But when you draw a picture <laughs> and they can follow the line, the colored line with their finger and they go, ah, and they go, yeah, there you go. Dude, so. I want to see that on. I, I mean, I know fans would love that once, you know, uh, it's been a few I'm just months. Trying to give the book about be you know, fantastic. Yeah. Oh, man. I think we're gonna, everybody's going to love that. Um, and I, I think, you know, one of the things that I love your explanation for this of, of just the why and the how, because it really does show how much thought you guys put into this. And, and obviously, I mean, anybody who uh, has listened to literary tracks or has read your books understands how much thought you guys put into this like nothing you're doing is by mistake or because you you know little things can happen here and there you know but there's so much love that's going into this and i I really appreciate that you know and the fact that you would sit down and just you know lay all that out so you yourself had the good understanding and you could explain to others i mean it it really does this is obviously you know a work of of people who really love this stuff and i think um, it I shows. Kind of so, yeah, of course, of course. I mean, it, we've been talking to each other for years now, and and so it's it's evident in everything that that you do, and and of course Dayton and and James as well, and everybody else who's written in in this mm-hmm. literary universe that this is a true act of love, and and so um, I yeah, one of the things everybody seems to feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I and I I felt that way, but yeah. I can see that some yeah. people out there are yeah. not of that opinion. It is. It is true. I do think that there are some people that have have voiced that opinion in, in different places. But mm-hmm. I, I mean, I can understand that sometimes grief makes you say things that you might regret later on. And I, well, I, yeah. I mean, I figure that so. for a lot of the readers who are just now getting to these three books and are having this experience, like, even though you know it's coming, it's like even when you know the demise of someone or something that you care about is coming. It does not in any way diminish right. the sense of loss, the feeling of loss you experience when the end finally arrives. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing that your pet has been sick for months does not make its final demise. Right. The day that you have to put the pet to sleep does not make it any less anguish, uh, mm-hmm. any any less you know painful. So the difference, I think, at this point is that James and Dayton and I and our editors, of course, and the licensor and our copy editor, we have all been living with this for about two years from concept through development, writing, editing. Um, and we've gone through all these stages. We've already been through this emotional grist mill, uh, the, you know, the Kubler-Ross five stages of grief. We, we've been through them already. And we've already arrived at acceptance because we have to. The work is done. We've done all we can do. We had to let go. Uh, it was, you know, there was no choice. It's like, at some point you've done all you can do. You have to let go. It's in the hands of the publisher. It's in the hands of the readers and it's going to be what it'll be. But mm-hmm. up until that point, you know, just like everybody else, you start out with, uh, you know, a denial, like, no, I can't believe we have to do this. Do we really have to do this? <laughs> we don't actually have to do this, do we? And then, then comes anger. And I think a lot of fans, especially the ones who are commenting and doing their hot takes right now in various places, they don't realize it, but they are on the second stage of grief and they are deep into anger. It's like, this really sucks. How dare they do this? This is terrible. This should never have been done. And then they slide right into step three, bargaining. Mm -hmm. 
Bargaining is where you try to figure out if there's some deal you could make with the universe to ameliorate this, mitigate this, change this, avert this. You know, what should have been done was this. Oh, the story they should have told was that. This should have been done. It should have been about this. They actually should have done this, or it should have been about that. Well, it's not. And if you're stuck in that mindset, then you're not engaging with the work that is. You are simply trying to bargain with yourself about the work you wish it was and the outcome you wish you had. That's basically the same as saying, if only we hadn't got cancer, if only we'd caught it sooner, if only the doctor had been able to do something, if only radiation had worked. Yeah, well, it didn't. It didn't. And now we're here. So you've got to get through bargaining. And that takes you to depression, which is, wow, that's heavy. This is sad. This is really sad. And there's no telling how long you'll be in any of these phases and you'll cycle back and forth and it's mm -hmm. kind of erratic, but eventually at some point you've got to get to acceptance and then yeah. just move on. One, I, one of the things that I thought was really fun uh, and you do this all the time in your books, but one of the little things that I love that I picked up in, in the whole uh, being back in, in that timeline with the Borg is, you know, how Picard as Locutus is basically, I'm endangering the mission. I shouldn't have come, you know, and he does the whole, basically the, the Luke from it's Return the Luke of the Skywalker. Jedi. Yeah, it was great. It was great. So I caught that and I loved it, um, you know, because, but it, it, it obviously it makes sense, you know, um, for, for that to be something that's going to really impact the character of Picard in that way. And so. Well, that's my favorite bit about going into the whole Borg setting was just to have one more chance for Beverly uh, Crusher to have a, a true, hero moment of the sort that the film and TV producers seem mm -hmm. committed to denying her. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted to give the character a true moment of, you know, heroic victory complete with a movie style tagline. Yeah, it was, I, I love that moment. She's one of my favorite characters. And of course, you know, the loss of, of this timeline means that mm -hmm. we lose the fact that her and Picard are married, which I always loved because to me, Picard being married was the hardest and most difficult journey he could ever take as a human being. Um, yeah, the evolution and, into fatherhood. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you guys just killed that in in, in this timeline, and and it was difficult. It's difficult for me to let go, but I shall let it go. Um, mm. And I wanted to ask you about you know bringing in the mirror universe and kind of you've done so much work there, and I really mm -hmm. kind of was enjoying the way that the, it had progressed. It felt a lot like you know the mirror universe had, had a lot in common with Foundation, um, the series. Oh yeah, it was very much inspired yeah. by Asimov's Foundation. So I loved that, and so I just would love to hear you kind of talk about you know bringing them in and what that meant to you and what you were you know just trying to do with them as a storyline to kind of give them a, an ending. I mean, obviously, if you sort of look at where the focus was in each of the three books, Dayton and James and I were sort of each in a way returning to and revisiting our own greatest hits. So with the Borg in book three, obviously, I'm revisiting in some way some of the themes behind Destiny uh, involving the mirror universe brings that whole storyline to its sort of organic conclusion, which was their interaction with our universe and particularly the Treklet universe redeemed them it put them on a path to redemption to show that they are not condemned to always be you know the the leather clad evil sadistic uh cruel picture of ourselves that they were simply another possibility and stop that giving goatees given a chance, bad names yeah that if given a chance <laughs> they could be just as good as us mm. and that is shown by the fact that exactly the point where 
Riker with temporal madness uh, devolves into temporary bad Admiral syndrome and turns Starfleet into the force that's hunting our good guys, we have to turn to the mirror universe to find allies who will actually protect us and help us and sacrifice with us right down to the wire. And it's ironic, you know, after all this time, where do you go to find, you know, nobility and heroism and selflessness? Well, we'll turn to the mirror universe for that. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's like, it's the most ironic possible ending for that particular arc, but it's also what I've been building up to uh, from everything from when I started Sorrows of Empire back in 2009 and then rewrote it for a novel length version in 2010 in which, you know, I, I sort of re-envisioned the whole story where you had the, we left off, you know, Mirror, Mirror and TOS where Spock, you know, has been given this vision of how to institute democracy, how to bring an end to the tyranny of the empire. And he says, Captain Kirk, I shall consider it. And then fast forward, you know, 90, 100 years or whatever to DS9 crossover. And we're told that Spock instituted these democratic reforms but then immediately his, you know, new uh, Republic or whatever was overrun by the Cardassian Klingon Alliance and the Terran people were enslaved and Spock was a fool. And I'm thinking, no, Spock was no fool. No, if this happened, it's part of a plan. Spock played you. You think you defeated Spock. You didn't defeat Spock. And so I concocted the story of Sorrows of Empire and the genesis of memory omega, which of course is a play on memory alpha and memory beta, which are the, uh, and memory prime, which are the data archives of the Federation. So memory omega is both an archive and it's this plan for the future. It's essentially foundation. I turned Spock into Harry Seldon mm, right down nice. to the point where he's seeing, you know, hundreds of years ahead, these great chess moves so that when he gets executed uh, at the end of uh, sorrows of empire, uh, his you know final statement to the Cardassian who's about to shoot him is with the uh, end of you know with the fall of my civilization begins the end of your own uh, tyranny cannot prevail, and the Cardassian shoots him. And the last line from Spock's point of view is you know as his world turned white, Spock knew that he had won. It's like that's his last thought. You've pulled the trigger, you idiot. I win. So I, I've been sort of building this for years and. Uh, I, there was no way I was going to do something that was about bringing the tr 20 years of Treklet to a close and not have some way and not in some way have a, a big part to play for the mirror universe, which I went to all this trouble to uh, rehabilitate. Yeah, which I, I think made a lot of sense to me. And and again, I, like I loved Having just reread the foundation, the original foundation book, I immediately, you know, recognize exactly where you had gone. And I thought that was a really cool idea. Um, and, you know, it's it's one of those fun things that I've loved that you, you as the authors have done uh, over these last 20 years is utilized bits and pieces of different things that you do love um, to kind of bring in and help tell stories in this universe. Um, and it, it worked really well um, and, it, and it created a really interesting uh, aspect for the story. Which and you touched on a little bit, you know the 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 Riker story there, and we have some great character stories. I think in this last book, um, for you know what I like to call um, all of these characters in in the end, the epic Star Trek Suicide Squad. Um, but I really liked Riker's story because, and I know a lot of fans were complaining about, it, but I really saw this as 
you know, when you can only see the bad of something and you're so fearful, it makes you do really dumb things sometimes because you're not thinking clearly. And I really enjoyed you guys playing with him like that because I think it it meant more by having a character of Riker's status go through this and show us what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was in severe pain. He wasn't even really uh, evil. He wasn't uh, you know, being driven by pride or, or malice. He was being driven by anguish. He was being driven by grief and the fact that he suddenly finds himself you know, in the thrall of, you know, under the yoke of a version of himself, a temporal echo of his psyche, which has taken up residence inside his head, which is so overwhelmed with, you know, the this recent grief and loss that it's just overpowering. He can't fight against it because there's a lot of power, a lot of uh, energy that comes out of that kind of pain. And so he's struggling against it. And I know that obviously there's a lot of criticism of, you know, coming so quickly after uh, John Jackson Miller's uh, story in which, you know, uh, he was taken by the Cytherians and put through the mill like this. And, you know, I kind of lampshade that, you know, uh, at the end of book three, Um, why didn't the crew pick up on it sooner? Well, really from the point where he really kind of goes off the deep end, like starts becoming clearly unhinged. That's not to like really the very end Mm -hmm. of book two. Like up to that point, he's you know a little bit more strident than usual, but it's all perfectly explainable you know within the context of the scenes. Like when he's first dealing with Picard at Starfleet Command, it's entirely plausible that he could have simply arrived at a different conclusion, at a different uh, interpretation of events than Picard did. It's not necessarily any sign that he's unhinged there's no reason his crew would think he was unhinged through most of book two and he's trying to bring picard to justice from his crew's point of view it just could look like he wants to be the one to bring in his friend so that nobody else does and screws it up and maybe kills the man right they think he's probably just trying to bring his friend in and we're going to help him do it they don't see him as unhinged because from their point of view he's not doing anything that crazy until the end of book two, where suddenly the verbal slips start to happen. Suddenly it becomes clear something is wrong with this dude. And from that point at the end of book two, where it's really clear from the point of view of an outsider, well, now you've got a problem because this guy is a flag officer. He's an admiral. This is a military organization. Even in a time of great crisis, it takes a lot for a junior officer trained in a military organization with a military hierarchy to say, you know what? I think we need to do something about the admiral. You don't do it. Admirals get a lot of leeway because they're admirals. That's the whole point. <laughs> so, yes, he starts to go off. He starts to clearly come unhinged at the end of book two. And they say, you know, you spend half of book three on it before. It's like yeah, half of book three is what, 24 hours? So from the point where he starts to act really unhinged takes action, you know, they immediately try to take action, his wife, the captain, and the, and the medical officer to do something about it. Within a matter of hours, they've confronted him. They didn't let this go on for weeks from the point where he starts to seem clinically unhinged, like to the point where you can say, okay, that's definitely something wrong. That's not just difference of opinion. There's something wrong with this dude. They took action within hours and he trumped them because he saw them coming. And now the rest of the crew is on pins and needles. They're like, that's not good. Right. Well, within 24 <laughs> yeah. hours after that, 
they've turned it around again. And at that point, you know, his wife you know, has managed to work channels and gotten to the first officer and gotten obviously the security team you know, on board. Nobody's tipping their hand. Everybody's got poker face right up to the moment that they goad him and take him into custody on the bridge. And it's like, okay, it seems like it took a long time, but it really only took 24 to 36 hours after he started to show real signs of, of being a problem child in in the middle of a great crisis, 36 hours to act on an admiral. That's actually pretty damn impressive. It may have seemed longer to the reader, but it really mm-hmm. wasn't. It was literally yeah. a matter of hours. Yeah, which, and again, makes sense when you think about, and I, I think, you know, as a reader, you, you can st- kind of forget about, you know, the time that you're mm-hmm. playing with and the, the t- like how much time we're actually dealing with. And because mm-hmm. you, you're so engrossed in the story. And uh, no, it feels like maybe it's days going by, but it's not. It's actually hours. Yeah, absolutely. When when uh, days seem like hours. So I feel like hours would seem like days. (laughs) Uh, Another really uh, obviously key part uh, in the story is where the emissary and the hand of the prophets unite. And I, you know, I really loved this about the story. Um, I had missed the fact that Cisco had kind of been you know, relegated to just being a captain and not being the emissary really anymore. Um, and I just wanted to to have you talk a little bit about using them um, in the, the this kind of like spiritual aspect again, uh, and, and especially the fact of really paying off the fact that we had called Kira the Hand of the Prophets, and that actually meant something. Yeah, I mean, that takes me all the way back to my first DS9 novel, Warpath, that was where she got the uh, mm-hmm. the sobriquet uh, of Hand of the Prophets. Came about through these sort of weird uh, wormhole visions she was having while she was in a coma. And uh, I think originally when Marco Palmieri, the editor of the books at that time, asked me to take that route, the plan for her as the Hand of the Prophets was related to the Ascendance storyline that he was working on. I think mm-hmm. it was supposed to be contained to that. But we saw an opportunity here. We said, well, you know, that crisis has come and gone and Kira persists. And, you know, she's even become more a woman of faith. She's, she's a Vedic now. She retains the, uh, the honorific. Uh, so we thought, well, let's, let's play with that. Let's figure out what that means. You know, you're the hand of the prophets. You are the, the active hand, the active instrument of non-linear temporal entities, and you are their instrument in linear time. What does that actually mean? Um, And so we try to subvert that expectation, obviously, in book two, by having to say, well, obviously, what it means is she's the one who has to make the decision to close and destroy this universe's version of the wormhole by sacrificing DS9. Uh, And we try to make you think that's what it was about. And then you find out in book three that she's not done, that there is one last task left to the hand of the prophets. And it's to basically make re- reestablish contact, bringing the orb of time from her universe to the wormhole in the mirror universe and thereby, you know, uh, assist in the plan to sort of undo everything by acting as the stable beacon, the stable uh, focus point for everybody else. And then you find out that she's got some power at the end where she's actually channeling some temporal power from the prophets um, to stop time for a critical moment 
to enable the plan to succeed. So it was just sort of fun to you know, pull these things out of the air. Um, the only thing, you know, sort of that we regret is that uh, there were so many complex ongoing storylines in the DS9 books that David R. George III had been writing. And there was just no time to resolve all of those. And there was really no way to gracefully integrate them into what we were doing without at the same time making it feel as if we were disregarding David's plans for those storylines. Uh, we didn't want to just suddenly, you know, you know, affix a, a new meaning or new conclusion onto, you know, the Rebecca Cisco storyline or uh, whatever the, you know, the other sort of ongoing threads that he had been building. Um, but at the same time, you know, we, we couldn't just fold them in some other way. And we're like, well, what do we do here? It's like, well, we're just going to have to fastball it. We we're rolling somewhat beyond. We'll have to assume those got resolved at some point prior to this in the continuity. Um, because what we need from Cisco is we need him as the emissary back in that role. We need him to be called back to that role by the prophets in book two. Uh, we need him and Kira to play more active roles uh, as the emissary and the hand in books two and three. And how that relates or doesn't relate to whatever long-term plan David R. George had going in the DS9 books, well, we just, there was no room to address it. We just, we said, we have to let that go. You want to do as much as you can, but you can't do everything. So you pick the things you know you can do well. And ultimately, just like the TV producers were known to do, we picked the option that best served the story we were trying to tell. And sometimes that just means overwriting old continuity or letting other uh, storylines fall away. Yeah. And I mean, for me, it totally worked, obviously, um, just especially with those two characters and, and, and specifically uh, for me personally, I'd always missed, you know, Cisco kind of having a higher calling other than, you know, just kind of being another Star Trek captain because, you know, that was one of the things that set him apart in this, in the series. And, and I loved that being back and that, you know, he had this role and, and Kira did as well. And, and I think to me, it made it really special as a huge deep space nine fan. Uh, <laughs> and so I, it meant a lot to me, you know, I, I will say, you know, I, anytime those characters on screen, uh, or on the page, you know, I was, I was finding myself, you know, you know, very emotional just because, you know, I've loved them for so long. Like you said, you know, been, you've been writing in this universe for 20 years. I've been reading in this oh, universe my, my for that long. My professional Star Trek writing career yeah. began with episodes <laughs> of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Yeah, absolutely. Believe me, I have a lot of love for DS9. Yeah. So I, it was great. Um, I got it. I mean, Worf has had the worst luck possible. Um, mm -hmm. You're part of the reason that's the case. And yeah, so... Yeah. Was that one of the reasons that you allowed him to be able to find love at the end? <laughs> it just, I, that was one of those things that as soon as we were starting story development and talking about, well, what do we have? What are the pieces on the board? Which elements do we want to try and make sure we bring in? And we're like, well, you know, uh, we're, we want to bring in Mirror Universe and James and Dayton. We're like, well, Dave, you should probably take that and find some way to use it in book three because that's really been your baby. And I go, that makes sense. And as I start looking at it, I say, well, all right, let's look at the pieces on the board. Who's left from book two? Who's on the board? Who's in play? And that's when I remembered, all right, who was on the Mirror Universe joint ship enterprise? And that's when I remembered Kalar is XO. 
And I was like, oh, shit. the EXO coming over, you know, on the Defiant with uh, Picard is Worf. Worf has never met Mirror Kalar, not in canon, not in the lit. This is a first moment, and it's going to be earth-shaking for, moment, for both of them. And the moment I realized the enormous potential that resided in the meeting of prime or first splinter wharf and mirror universe uh kalar i was like well that's got to be a, a subplot that's a story in and of itself it would be criminal not to explore it and it was a definite choice you know having known how many times wharf has had to you know uh, neil weeping over his lost loves three times you know at this point you know uh, two of them at the fault of the TV producers, and one is mine, by the way. I only killed Jess Minder. They killed uh, Jed Zia <laughs> and, and Kalar. That was not me. I only killed one of three, so this let's not true. put all this of this true. on my head. <laughs> you didn't um, kill everyone. <laughs> I didn't kill all of them. Sake. I killed one. But, uh, but yeah, you put them back together with Kalar, and then suddenly you know, there's this great opportunity for this star-crossed romance. They each you know see something in the other that you know isn't there there's all this doubt uh there's this pulling away but there's also this undeniable magnetic attraction that they're both feeling uh and the best part of all of that was you know when they finally couple together and she has to slap him and say you know what's ever the point of love you fool the point is to live before you go to stovo core and it's like she's right <laughs> death is coming and love is a gift uh, true love is a gift given to very few uh, take it while you got it. And then the ending, of course, you know, big spoiler here. So if you haven't read the end of the book, uh, put your fingers in your ears and go, la, la, la. I'm not listening, Jeffrey. Earmuffs. Um, yeah, earmuffs. Uh, it just, it seemed poetic and right that at the very end, you know, the family, uh, the family of Worf standing together in battle, you know, a Klingon family glorious together. And then Father takes a brutal hit. Son tries to go to the father. Son is hit. Father and son are down, not yet dead, but definitely dying and in bad shape. And then to have Kalar, you know, the the fierce uh, lioness, the mother protector, take up his sword, you know, his batleth, and she's just slaughtering everything that gets in her range. That was just to me, that was like uh, just a beautiful moment. I saw that in my imagination and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's got to happen. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing like, you know, the, the dramatic upswell from the end of Queens, who wants to live forever? And she's like slicing Davidians you know, apart, knocking them off the platform. Um, and then, of course, you know, it's basically for her, the arc is she's been alone her whole life. She's been a loner her entire life. And on the last day of her life, she meets her true love and the family she could have had. And then you've got Worf, who's had all these star-crossed romances you know, everything's been taken away from him, uh, you know, time and time again. And on the last day of his life, he gets back the first great love of his life. And his son gets back his mother. I'm like, dude, I got to do this. <laughs> this. This is, if nothing else made book three worth writing, their story did. Yeah, I think that was something that I just, I, re- I loved about the book. And it really jumped off the the page for me was was this opportunity to, you know, if if Worf in this continuity and this first splinter, you know, if if he's going to go to Stovacor, uh, that he would go in 
out in this way. And, you know, um, you know, with everything that you authors have done to kind of bring him back with his son and, and to kind of repair that relationship there. And I mean, I just I, it really felt like a very nice ending for a character that sometimes, uh, you know, gets overlooked. And, you know, I think he get, ends up, you know, if you read all of the lit first, he ends up having a really nice arc from start to finish. And, you know, like you, it, he also gets one of the most Klingon ways to go out, right? You know, just just glorious battle next to people that he loves. And and I think that was great. I, I, I loved it. Um, it. It was definitely, I think, one of the highlights of the book, um, as well as, you know, you made Wesley the alpha and the omega of this story. Um, and the time lord who is his own TARDIS. It, which at the same time becomes the basis for the Davidian avatars and everything. And so um, where did all of that come from? And, um, you know, for you to kind of bring his story to a close here, because he's been so integral to this entire trilogy. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I mean, a lot of that happened as we were arguing out all of the time travel mechanics and trying to figure out what is old Wesley doing? Where is he coming mm. from? What has he seen? Why can't he tell us everything we need to know right at the beginning? And so it's because he knows he's tried before. And it's like the more information he tries to give out, the worse it seems to go. But if he says nothing, it doesn't help. So he's trying to play this balancing game. How many clues can I give to set them on the right path without biasing events and then screwing it all up again? And then so we're trying to figure out where he's been, what he's seen. And then you trying to interpret that from the point of view of middle-aged Wesley, you know, adult traveler Wesley, trying to second guess his older self. Uh, and then we just we started to have fun with the question of, well, if he's able to manipulate space, time, thought, matter, energy uh, himself, what else could he do? And then, you know, suddenly James is pulling out these incredible ideas of, you know, he's summoning temporal echoes of himself so that there's 14 Wesleys, you know, in runabouts going out into battle together. I'm just like, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, if he can do that, what else can this dude do? And I think the notion of, you know, finding out that he is the foundation for his own enemies, for the Naga, for the avatars, um, and the sort of circular nature of being made into your own opponent. A lot of that came from the fact that I was really a big fan of the TV series version of 12 Monkeys, which was ironically enough uh, run by Terry Matalas, who is now the showrunner on Star Trek Picard. And there was just a lot of that sort of great mechanics. Like, you know, it looks for, you know, all the world, like there's just nothing but chaos and unexplained connections as you're watching each season unfold. And then suddenly you get, you know, toward the end of each season, and then especially when you got to the end of the series and you start seeing the threads all come together and you see, you know, that the alpha and the omega are the same thing. The beginning and the end are one. Uh, and I think part of that thinking, that sort of sense of coming full circle, you reach the end of the story only to find out you've set the beginning in motion. I think that was very much inspired by Terry Matalus's work on uh, 12 Monkeys. So that's part of where that came from. And then like a, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the interactions between uh, Wesley and Beverly Crusher, uh, of course, were the product of, you know, at the time that I was developing story. And then while I was writing the manuscript, I was uh, mourning my mother. So mm. that's where a lot of that came from. 
I, and I, I have to say, I really enjoyed that part of the story, and I'm glad that you gave them that time together. Um, you know, again, because these are characters to which we don't know if we'll ever see again in the prime timeline. Uh, so to be able to see Wesley and um, Beverly have those moments was was really special, and 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 two, just the way in which you know, with Beverly and Wesley and Jean Luc together, you know, and and what these characters mean to one another and again that's all comes down to what y'all is the authors did in allowing Picard to open up his heart to be a father to be you know kind of a stepfather even though you know Wesley's a traveler and has really no need of a dad at this point but you you gave them all something that was really special there and and I I I loved that part I, I thought it was really well done and um it meant a lot to me just just as a reader to get to see those characters have those moments because they'll never come again, you know. <laughs> yeah. And also the uh, because of Wesley's sort of interesting relationship with time and space, or whatever, it allowed us to sort of inject again a note of hope into what is otherwise a tragic, bleak moment where, you know, in the moment when mm-hmm. Beverly is grieving his, you know, apparently final death. Um, it's Renee who has to sort of say, you know, mom, be quiet for just a second. Listen, listen. And when she does what Renee tells her to do, she can hear Wesley's voice. And he's basically explaining to her, you know, uh, I am now the beginning of time. I'm the end of time. I've always been, I always will. Um, there's a sense of, I am no longer here, but I am not lost. And mm-hmm. we will be together again. He tells her, yeah. we will be together yeah. again. Yeah. So, I mean, there's lots of little notes like that. There's the sense of Worf and his family get to go to Stovacor together. Wesley assures his mother and his brother, we will be together again. The prophets tell Kira explicitly, you know, we remember forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got Benny Russell, you know, who is basically saying all of these stories are no more and no less important than the other. And they're all real. We have a niche mm-hmm. in chapter 40 telling Picard, you know, when he says it'll be a blessing to know which of these things I'm seeing are real and which are not. And she says, that's the first lesson, Jean-Luc. Mm-hmm. They're all real. Yeah. And that's sort of you know, when people say, I don't see the message of hope in this book. Well, then you weren't really paying attention were you (laughs) because the whole thing it's right there it's we have multiple iterations of people being told it i know it looks like it's over but you're not forgotten it wasn't pointless it wasn't for nothing Mm -hmm. there are multiple points where that is reinforced and you are told again this was not for nothing Mm. yeah and i i think that's that's something that's so important. And like you said, you know, I, I always think about how, you know, the Harry Potter series is so much about death and coming to understand death, you know, uh, from from childhood to adulthood. And, uh, you know, the, in the many ways, this series is like that, too, you know. And um, so I really I really like that. And I think it does make it mean something more, which is always good when you can do in a medium. Um, and so. One of the big plot points that you used was making the orb of time time's skeleton key. And mm-hmm. so where did that idea come from? Because the moment you said it, it made complete sense that this artifact linked to the prophets would be something that could do something like this in the end. Well, again, that was the product of many, 
many conversations, some uh, over Zoom calls, uh, some just in a, a Twitter direct message channel that Dayton and James and I set up. We had many back and forths uh, over the course of a, a few months where we were trying to figure out all the various things that could be in play and how they could work. You know, we were trying to figure out not only what did we want to do for an ending, but how was it going to work and how was it going to be dramatized? Why was it going to be emotionally important to the characters? So that determined in a lot of ways who wound up together at the end, uh, why certain things were involved, which ones. So there was the, the rationale was, of course, you know, it's usually great when you have a finale that's operating uh, not just on events at one point and not even just the two points, but the three points where you've got to align three things um, in order for the heroes to achieve victory. They've all got to be in sync and they're all facing challenges. And if any one of them fails, the whole thing goes down. It's really just a, a great dramatic tool to amplify the, uh, the stress and the the risk and the stakes uh, that you know uh, attached to the ending. Um, it's also a great way to maintain pacing as you cut between them uh, with shorter and shorter chapters, shorter and shorter scenes, uh, accelerating the pace at which we race toward the very end. Um, so it came out of that, and I guess once we realized, you know, we had the orb of time, which had been introduced in the show, and it had been shown in Trials and Tribulations that Kira had a particular knack for using the orb of time. She was the one who was able to figure out how to use it to bring Defiant back from the 23rd century back to the 24th century. They said it in the episode. That was Kira. So we have some canonical basis that Kira has a particular knack with the orb of time, a connection with it. And we said, well, let's build on that. We have a canon basis. Let's go from there. And then the Orb of Time and some, several other orbs were integral to uh, some visions she had in the DS9 novels. Uh, she's interacted with more than one, which is apparently a very rare thing among the Bajoran people. And, you know, even some of the high-level Vedics and Kais never got to handle more than one of the orbs. And, you know, she has encounters with multiple. Uh, so we said, all right, so we've got the Orb of Time. And I said, and the Davidians have their intertime base and they have whatever technology they're using to destroy timelines. And then we have the Borg with whatever technology they use to cause the fracture. And so it just seemed to us that, okay, if these uh, two things, or actually if this one thing caused the, the fracture, and then this other device is being used to exploit the fracture, you have to use both of them to fix it. But how do you calibrate the two of them? And how do you keep it all from going haywire? You need something that acts as a beacon, a constant, uh, some, some something that can be used to balance. You need something that is true. And that turned out when we talked about it, we said, well, that sounds like the orb of time. Um, and then we, we were able to find the drama in that, which is, you know, when Kira has to destroy the celestial temple at the end of book two, the orb of time goes dark and she feels like, Oh my God, I, I've killed my gods. I've killed my gods. And she's living with this, you know, as the hand of the prophets, as a Vedic, you know, as a, as a member of the clergy, you know, imagine being a, a Catholic priest and realizing you've just killed God or you just killed, you know, God, the son and God, the Holy spirit. You know, well, now what do you do? How do you live with that? How do you live with yourself? And she's grappling with this guilt and this grief in the beginning of book three. 
until the point at which the prophets who exist in the mirror universe and you reside in the mirror universe incarnation of the wormhole are able to reach out to her again through the reignited orb of time. So the orb of time in that respect, also as a MacGuffin is again, another symbol of hope. Yeah. And I, I, again, as a deep space nine fan, it was just so great to have all of these elements be used and come back together. And like you said, it's such a perfect thing to be able to use because that was one of the fun things about that episode trials and tribulations is that, well, you don't have to do a bunch of techno babble, you know, you can just say it was the orb of time and you're like, Oh, okay. Well, that makes oh, complete sense. Yeah. Wibbly, 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 exactly. Wibbly stuff. Exactly. Uh, and so I absolutely love that. Um, one, one, Big thing I, I thought, you know, when we're talking about thematic elements, something that really meant a lot to me uh, in this, and, you know, we've you've mentioned a few times, you know, how some people have, have, have talked about there being a lack of hope, but, you know, some, there's a, there's a phrase in the book, make it mean something. And... Bishop says that to Bashir when he's dying. Mm-hmm. Our lives only mean something when we make them mean something. So he says, go make ours mean something. And... What I really came down with is like, you know, they're doing the right thing to the bitter end. Because mm-hmm. if they do nothing, then all of time then this is evil will be visited yeah. upon countless yeah. others. Yeah. And and so I just really liked that that even if we can't go on, we, we can we, keep we can prevent yeah. evil from winning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And isn't that why, you know, people uh go to war or you know like all of these things we do we do the right thing at the right time for the right reason and i think that was something that just really hit me i think to me that's the overarching thematic element for this entire series and these characters show us that you know even if it means our end it's worth fighting for um, and it's worth yeah. dying for we fight for a belief you know we fight for a principle yep and i think in that regard this book, like a, a couple of years ago, I read a, a book of sort of nihilistic philosophy called The Conspiracy Against the Human Race by Thomas Ligotti. And he's a, a well-known horror author. And he was talking specifically in that book about the relationship between nihilist philosophy and cosmic horror, like Lovecraftian style horror, uh, and just the horror that is born out of existential dread. Uh, out of concepts of death, of nothingness. And it's very much what you'd expect. It's in many regards, a depressing work, which sort of argues that uh, human consciousness is not a good thing, that in fact, if anything, it's a cruel cosmic joke. um, And that essentially, you know, sentience is uh, uh, human life. How does he put it? Uh, It's malignantly worthless. (laughs) And I thought, well, you know, I can almost see the argument you're making, but I, I maybe I'm in denial, but I can't follow you there. <laughs> and so if anything else, I mean, as much as I found uh, a number of things that were valid and interesting in his uh, you know, use of philosophy to talk about what it is that compels us about cosmic horror, I also wanted just to write something that I felt would be a rebuttal to this mm-hmm. argument that life is malignantly useless. I like that, and and I think again, it it's something that means something. I think beyond 
this series. It is metatextual, and I think it's an important thing for us to remember. Like, we're not always going to win in our lifetime, right? But it is worth doing the right thing regardless of the cost, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that's what yeah. inspires, like, one of the epigraphs yeah. at the start of the book, which is you know, the truest measure of a civilization's greatness is its willingness to sacrifice for others. Yeah. And then, you know, the second uh, epigraph on the next page, of course, is Marcus Aurelius. What we do echoes in eternity. Mm-hmm. And when you yeah. put those two together, that's really the theme of the book. Yeah, 100%. Um, a, a question that uh, I had put out there for people and and I got and I thought was a really good question was, was there any, you know, character uh, that you wish you could have used in Coda and you just couldn't make it work? Just couldn't make it work. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, in retrospect, there are characters I wish we could have spent more time with. Uh, characters like Garak. You know, he had some scenes in uh, book two that I thought were good and, and quite affecting. And I, I gave some notes to James about uh, those moments. Um, it would have been nice if, you know, I think I would have liked to have spent a little more time seeing the situation from Spock's point of view, because I, I do love Spock as a character um, and it would have been nice. But again, a lot of these cuts were determined by pacing. Another scene that I wanted to write, but I could never really find a good place to put it in without, again, screwing up the pacing was the meeting between Alexander and uh, Kalar, mm. the, you know, the meeting of the son, you know, meeting the image of his deceased mother. There was a lot there, but again, from a pacing standpoint, I couldn't figure out where to put it, where it would feel right, where it would feel organic. And, but I think to be perfectly honest, uh, probably another reason I shied away from tackling that scene is it would have just been too much for me as mm-hmm. an individual. Yeah. Having just lost my mom. Yeah. I just yeah. don't think I could have written it. Yeah. No, I, I, Totally understand. I can't even imagine what that would have been like. And, and I just where you went, I think, just for yourself emotionally with writing the scenes with, you know, Wesley and Beverly. And, you know, I, I, I just I think it means a lot more knowing that's where it was coming from for you. Uh, I, I think that that's really special. Um, and it's one of the beauties of art, right? You know, getting the opportunity. Yeah, it's cheaper than therapy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And what I think it shows is just how much of yourself and how much of yourselves the other authors have all poured into these books, right? You know, and how much you pour into anything you create. Oh, sure. But I think for all three of us, because we knew what this trilogy represented, we were all keenly aware uh, almost to a paralyzing degree sometimes of how badly we wanted these books to be good, that we all three of us wanted to be at our best. Uh, we, we, I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty sure this is true of the other guys t- as well, but I felt every time I sat down to write pages for this book, this has got to be my best. I've got to find the best words I can possibly find. Good enough is not good enough. I wanted there to be, some turn of phrase, something beautiful, or at least something true on every page. Um, it was vitally important to me that this not just be phoned in, uh, that I not accept, uh, 
you know, this is, you know, well, that's good enough. That'll get us out of the scene. No, I, I wanted to make sure that every scene had some heft, had something true, had something at stake, moved us forward, revealed something. Uh, but most of all, I wanted it to have something that would, you know, I wanted every scene at least to have something that would make someone sit back and go, well, that's nice. That's a nice touch. That's a good scene. What um, one of the things I was thinking as you were talking about that is um, what is the and I didn't ask any of the other guys this and I'm kicking myself yeah. now. But what is the one character as it was progressing you think you'll miss writing the most in this continuity? Uh, good question. I mean, it's hard to say, but I feel like, you know, I'm going to miss I'm going to miss Worf. I felt like I really enjoyed every opportunity I ever got to write for Worf because what I loved doing with him was subverting the expectations that people had. They would see him as this monosyllabic kind of a lunkhead who, you know, for a lot of episodes, it seemed his purpose was to get beaten up to show just how serious the threat was. And it wasn't until deep space nine that I felt in a lot of ways, his character got rehabilitated uh, he was shown to be very savvy, that he was capable of, uh, you know, greater depth, uh, that he developed a sense of humor, um, that we began to see more of him, you know, evolving into a thoughtful uh, leader, you know, someone who had the capacity to lead. And one of the great touches, of course, is, you know, at the end of DS9 in the season finale, we're told that he's going to become the Federation's ambassador to Kronos. Because, you know, he's kinsman to Chancellor Martok, so why wouldn't you send him as your ambassador? And we never really got to see that in canon. We never got to see a canon representation of Ambassador Worf being ambassador. It's like the next thing we know, he's back in a Starfleet uniform in, uh, like, you yeah. know, Generations or First Contact. Uh, it's so Nemesis it's like, by that point, hell? isn't it? Yeah, it's it's yeah, terrible. It's like, what the hell? So it's like they, they shove him back into a, a Starfleet uniform for no good reason. But we got to expand on that. You know, Keith DeCandido did some amazing work with Ambassador Worf. I got to write Ambassador Worf in the Time 2 books. And when we finally explained, you know, him leaving the diplomatic corps, coming back into Starfleet with this new political experience, that it broadened his perspective. It deepened him as a thinker, as someone who knew how to deal with other people. And so, you know, we see that he's not just the uh you know the the gruff shouting klingon he was in early tng that he's really grown into a, a thoughtful uh decent you know uh, and in many ways very shrewd commanding officer and i really got to enjoy writing him in collateral damage which was my last tng novel uh in which you know he's given temporary acting command of the enterprise while picard is facing an article 32 disciplinary hearing back on earth and something happens that you know, Worf is compelled to take the Enterprise into action to deal with these Nausicans who have attacked uh, bases or whatever. And over the course of the story, he begins to realize, well, the Nausicans, they look like the bad guys until you dig into why are they so desperate? And he goes back to the Nausicaan homeworld, which was mentioned as having been destroyed in uh, Star Trek Destiny by the Borg. And he looks at it and the whole planet is just laid waste. It's radioactive mud. And he says, you know, what did the Federation rescue teams and, uh, and the salvage team say when they came here? And that's when the crew checks the logs and they said, nobody ever came here. The Noskins were assholes. They never liked us. We never sent anybody. And that's when Worf realizes 
we turned our back on these people. We unleashed a threat upon the galaxy. They lost their entire planet, and we didn't even send a relief ship. We've never been here. And that's when he realizes we dropped the ball. They may not have been Federation citizens, but they were our neighbors. And we had an obligation, and we did not live up to it. And that's when he reaches out, and suddenly it's Ambassador Worf. You see him as a diplomat reaching out to his kinsman, Chancellor Martok, saying, you know, what can the Klingon Empire do to help fix this mess? You know, the yes, the Federation screwed up. Can you help me fix it? And he basically gets the Nausicans, the Federation government and the Klingon government. He pulls three sides together, gets them. He brokers a solution and he gets a new home world in the Klingon Empire for the Nausicans who have lost their place. He gets them a chance to start over again. We get to see the Nausicans as being more than just thugs. But most of all, we get to see Worf. What could Worf have been as a captain? And to see him pulling the strings of two governments and a faction of, you know, would-be pirates and thugs, and basically working out a diplomatic solution, solving a massive interstellar crisis, not through force of arms, but through mercy, through compassion, through reason, through generosity, through forgiveness. That's that's the wharf I've come to know in Treklet. That's the wharf I've gotten to help bring into uh, into fruition. That's the wharf. That's the character I'm going to miss, is this nuanced mature uh diplomat of wharf man i i think as you said that i was just thinking about how so many of the characters you know that that have been in the hands of the treklet authors i'm going to miss because of that reason because of the nuance that they've been given and the time they've been given and and that'll be the thing uh, i even said on the trek bbs thing i'll miss the most um and so one last thing i had to ask you because you know you end with picard um, and yeah. him kind of having this experience of all of these different lives um, and, of course, fading basically into what we know as the I don't know, prime timeline Picard verse now, you know. So uh, talk about just ending there and, and, and was that always the place that you feel, felt like you would end or did it come um, throughout the writing process or how, yeah. Well, how did that, that come was in about? the outline? Okay. From, from the very beginning, that was where I thought I wanted to bring it to a close. And I know that, you know, again, some people are like, you know, why give so much attention at the end to Picard? You know, uh, he's already got his own show. It's like, well, there's a reason he has his own show. He's probably one of the most, if not the most popular character in the entire history of Star Trek. He is the paterfamilias. He is the face of 24th century Star Trek to a great wide swath of the fandom. And in many ways, it, uh, the journey of the next generation was Picard's journey. Uh, and the journey that uh, he took through Treklet uh, was instrumental and it was at the heart of most of the stories we did his journey into fatherhood uh, his development as a person and so when it all has to come to an end since I wanted him to be the one to push the the button to basically commit the final act that undoes it all to be the one with the responsibility um, and to have his wife, you know, to basically, you know, to, to kiss his wife. And, you know, in that moment, he's holding his son, he's holding his wife, he's kissing Beverly and he pushes the button and ends it all. Now he's at this, as I, I believe I put it, you know, he's uh, at this fulcrum, uh, you know, he, he's at the center uh, of time. And 
suddenly he's got this just this crazy experience at the end as you know timelines emerge and collapse around him through him in him um and i just i i just i felt like that is what i wanted to do i wanted him to sort of see this breadth of possibilities and some of it is glimpses to things that we've seen in the shows in the movies and we get that glimpse of him from tapestry uh the disappointed middle-aged lieutenant who realizes he could have been so much more uh but you know we also get an allusion to the fact that he once said he thought about leaving the academy to become an archaeologist so we see a glimpse of that life we see glimpses of you know other lives he could have lived other possibilities we see moments from his past moments from his future moments that never were um you know, maybe he will or won't die alone in a hospital on Luna. We don't know. Uh, Picard, the series certainly doesn't seem to think so. Um, but the point is that he's having all these experiences and there's something sort of poetic about it. You're seeing this moments from his childhood, uh, you know, with, you know, the cruelty of his father uh, and the way that his brother was sort of, you know, complicit in that, how the family hurts, these family injuries uh, as a boy drove him. You just, you're sort of seeing the, entirety of his life unfolding like a flower uh and out of order and then you come to sort of you know this point with anish where she explains to him you know these moments you know he said you know they're all real you know he wants to know which of the moments he's seeing are real she's like all of them that's the point and then we just have you know the bit with data then we have the bit at the end um it was always the idea that we were going to sort of just go through this poetic version of a life which is why section three of the book is called the measure of a life uh it's you know how do you measure the value of your life it's basically what cisco is saying go make your life mean something well how do you do that uh well the characters in the story do that through their actions and Worf, you know does that when he dies next you know next to kalar and alexander Riker does that when he finally comes around and shows up at the last minute with the cavalry um and Picard, you know, he he forgives Riker on the spot. There's no time left for, for grudges. There's no time left for recriminations. It's accept, forgive, move on. And then we have this sort of elegiac, uh, you know, tour through his lives, his lives that were, his lives that could have been, might have been, might yet be. But in the end, it all comes down to, but then comes oblivion's inevitable embrace and the rest is silence which is essentially what waits for all of us, you know, no matter, you know, wh- how disjointed time may be at the end, that's what waits. And then of course, just for emotional impact on the facing page, uh, I've got Leonard Nimoy's last words uh, on Twitter. Uh, Life is like a garden. Perfect moments can be had, but not preserved except in memory, live long and prosper, which I've thought were very poetic. And what was interesting about that is that, you know, here he's talking about uh, the gardens and then you've got Picard tending his garden of his vineyard. But when you talk about tending your garden in a metaphorical sense, you're talking about caring for the things, nurturing the things you care about, your life, your loved ones, your home, uh, or in you know Jean-Luc's case, his vineyard. Um, and then, of course, you know, the section titles and, you know, some of the little moments are all inspired by a rush song called The Garden. Uh, so the section titles are all, you know, extracted from the lyrics of the garden. So this theory, this image of a garden and this notion 
of moments being preserved. Like this whole notion about uh, perfect moments can be had. Anish said that in Star Trek Insurrection. The moment about the, the quote about time being a companion that goes with us. They said that in First Contact. So I realized that there were these echoes, these thematic echoes about time, about gardens, about perfect moments, about memory. And they go through all of Star Trek. They've been in generations. They've been in insurrection. Uh, you know, now they're in uh, Picard, but they're also in this work by, you know, Rush, uh, by Neil Peart, you know, this artist who I've uh, idolized for most of my life. And I realized that in this particular case, I had an opportunity to tie all these things together and make it not just a swan song for the, the Treklet, but also an homage uh, to Neil at the same time and an homage to Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. And I, I think it was, um, and it made sense to end that way, obviously, because everything, it, you know, the, the whole point of this is to kind of basically transition us into where we are now in the prime timeline with these characters. And so to end with Picard made sense. Um, and then I, in the way that you wrote it, it was, and who knows if they'll ever do anything with this, but there was a, there was a part of me that felt like everything that Picard experienced there, like is a part of the Picard in the Picard show. And so that he remembers all of these different lives and, that was a nice thing because even if it's never explicitly said in the show, I can still make it part of, you know, what I think of when I, you know, watch the show, which was great. Um, because, you're yeah, you're right. Yeah. I can't explicitly say that, but it's, right. it's a lovely notion. Yeah. And then again, then you have the, uh, the epilogue, the grace note, what, uh, you know, what remains to be seen uh, with Benny Russell again. And again, there, the notion is that, uh, all of these stories have mattered. Uh, and you know, we've got the whole thing where you're, you're with him at the moment as he's finishing writing what apparently is the manuscript for the book you've just read. And then, you know, he has this flash of inspiration where he starts the first sentence of his next book. And he just happens to write the first sentence of Una McCormick's The Last Best Hope, which is the first book uh, for Star Trek Picard, uh, which is also a prequel novel to the series. And, there's a line about, you know, it ends on a new future begins here, which is Benny's internal monologue. The new future begins here. And the irony of this, of course, is the date at the top of the epilogue is September 8, 1966, the date on which Star Trek premiered on American television. So a new future begins here. Yes, Star Trek premieres that day. It also is a new future begins here with Star Trek Picard, with uh, Una's book. Um, and so it's operating on a lot of levels. There's like a lot of little Easter eggs there, but sort of bringing in Benny to, again, just highlight the metatextual nature of the story uh, and sort of, you know, again, just speak to, again, also this uh, very moving chapter uh, in Star Trek history. Uh, I just, I felt like that was the poetic touch that tied it together. Yeah. And I, I think it works, you know, and it, it, it does put a bow on something that, you know, has, you know, been very emotional and substantial for so many people for so many years, um, readers and authors and all the work and all the hours spent, um, for, 
on your side, you know, putting it all together for us, enjoying it and, and digesting it, talking about it. And, you know, now we're in a whole new era and who knows exactly how it all work and where they'll go. Um, but I do hope, uh, you know, for myself as a reader that, um, you know, they'll, you'll be a part of that in, in bringing us new Star Trek adventures, uh, whether, you know, set during the series that are going on or, you know, however they're going to format uh, what comes next. Who knows? So, but for myself... I'll be around. Yeah. I'll be around. Yeah, for myself, um, I just wanted to say, you know, one, I appreciate you so much for all of your hard work, but I also appreciate you for the time that you've given us here on Literary Treks over the years um, to, to be able to kind of pick your brain and talk about your work. And um, it's meant a lot to me personally, uh, the fact that you've done that. Uh, and um, I just appreciate it more than I can say. Uh, and so, you know, thank you for that. Obviously, you've mentioned uh, at the top of the show, you know, you're on to your next thing. So I would love for you to just let everybody know where they can find you. And if they're looking for Christmas gifts, David, what should they be picking up for their friends and family? Well, if you're looking for Christmas gifts, I'll start there. You can get the entire uh, Star Trek Coda trilogy now. They're all available. They're available through fine booksellers as trade paperback, uh, digital audiobook, and ebook, many formats from many retailers. So consider giving that as a gift. But if you're looking for a gift for, say, someone who's more of a fan of the new movies, the Kelvinverse movies, uh, I have a novel called More Beautiful Than Death. So I highly recommend that. If you've got someone who has enjoyed the new movies and that's the trek they dig, I think they'll dig that book. As for where to find uh, news and other blatherings from my brain, you can find them on my Twitter feed. I'm on Twitter at David Allen Mac. And that's David Allen, A-L-A-N, Mac, M-A-C-K. I'm on Facebook. My official author page is facebook.com slash the David Mac. And you can find my website, davidmac.pro. That's davidmac.pro. I uh, tend to post new books there once they become official and they're on sale and whatnot. Uh, and while I cannot give any details, I am at least... Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm closing in on locking in a new book project for uh, next year. So I'm very excited about that. And that's, uh, that's all the news that's fit to print at this time. <laughs> well, that's so awesome, man. Uh, of course, everybody can find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing Zero Two. Of course, you know I'm doing a ton of shows here on the network. So you can just check out uh, everything as well on our social media at Trek. Uh, FM or online at track.fm. But um, want to say, as always, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number 